Hey there, welcome to the Creative Metaverse Podcast, formerly known as the Game Artist Podcast. My name is Ryan Kingsline, and I'm the CEO of Vertex School, where we train creatives for the career of their lives. In this podcast, we interview amazing creatives and artists working in film, games, and building the metaverse right now. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. All right. Welcome, Fred. Is it uh, Fred Learman? Am I saying that right? Yeah, that's correct. Awesome. Man, thank you so much for joining me and for being here. So why don't we start this conversation out? Tell me what you do now, character, environment, how you fit into the whole game thing, and then we'll take the conversation from there. Okay. I would say that 90% of the work I do is 3D character work for all kinds of game platforms, uh, mobile, console, PC, but it's mainly in the games industry. Sometimes it's a little bit marketing work, but also yeah. for the games industry. So that would be then more subdiv pre-rendered assets. So it's a bit of a combination of both of those things, but it's mainly character work. And I do that together with my wife. We have a, a little company and she's a, a talented uh, technical artist, rigger. So she does kind of the technical part of the characters and I do the, the more artistic part. Oh man, that is super awesome. So you guys are like a power couple. Yeah, yeah. She's much smarter than me, so... <laughs> it's usually the case. <laughs> Certainly in mine, too. So, how long have you been doing this? Well, it's been a while. I think I started doing 3D stuff probably when I was 18, so I think it's been it's more than 10 years. So I started kind of... I didn't go to school or anything for this kind of stuff. I was doing like a, a very low-end kind of accounting type of education, but secondary school, nothing advanced. And we had to do on-site training that we could choose. And I had tricked the school into having me do the accounting training at little television advert studio who was doing 3D. Mm -hmm. And so I was essentially just doing 3D work with those people and then lying to my school that I was doing accounting work. <laughs> um, awesome. And somehow that worked out in the end. And then I started working there a little bit after school. So it was mainly like, dancing yogurt for TV commercials and stuff like that. And then I think my real start in the industry was when I started working at Crytek in Germany. Yeah. And that was, I think, 2006 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really have any experience with, you know, high-end character work or just any kind of high-end work. Uh, and that was like, at the time, like a really big AAA game studio. So they yeah. they really took a chance on me and... And that was kind of my start in the industry professionally. And you left CryEngine and then came back to them a little while later, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think I was there for a year and a half, a little bit more. And like I had never experienced any kind of real production. And for me, that year and a half was so intense. And I just burned out after a year and a half, which is kind of weird because I had only been in this industry for essentially a year and a half. But yeah, I just burned out and I didn't know if I wanted to do this kind of work anymore. So I left Germany, went back to Belgium, to my family and kind of just rebooted. And then I just put everything kind of in perspective and I figured out I really liked the work, but I wasn't really, like I didn't have time to grow up or to get used to this kind of intense production mm. environment. Right. And so after the shock of that, I then started looking for more work opportunities in the games industry. And I found out that I just didn't have enough experience. 
year and a half was not enough to get a job offer overseas or any other real significant company. Mm-hmm. So I started working in some smaller studios, but I felt like I was missing those really big productions. Looking back at that point, I really enjoyed the time I had at Crytek. And then I had the opportunity to go back to Crytek. And it was for a project that I had originally worked on when I left. And they had just gotten a publisher and funding for that. And the day I arrived, my second time at Crytek, yeah. they told me that they had just canceled the project. So, <laughs> yeah, it was, but you know, like that kind of stuff happens all the time totally. in the industry. And then I just rolled on to, it was Crisis 2 at the time. And then after Crisis 2, there was uh, Rise. That was like a um, Xbox One launch title, like really AAA, super high-res kind of scanned characters, um, performance capture, like really high-end stuff. And mm-hmm. on that project, up until then, I had always kind of been critical of management in the games industry. And we were going to, for that project, we were going to hire a character art manager because it was so intense in terms of character work. And so they figured right. we need a specific manager for the character stuff. And I just didn't want to just get a, a manager to tell us artists what to do. And, and because I was good friends with the, the producer on the project, I kind of convinced him to let me just do the managing on the side for the character work. And he allowed me to do that. And then basically that evolved into me becoming a full-time manager on that project, specifically for all the character work. So I was able then to really build my own character team along with another a good friend of mine who was a character artist there, Abdenur. So we kind of built our dream team of character artists. And we had just the best time on that project. It was like, you know, I've never experienced anything like that again. And I think it was like a really unique, awesome experience for us. I'm looking at the um, the videos for Rise right now. It's pretty it's crazy high level. Yeah, yeah. Know, especially it's, back it, then, right? Yeah, especially back then. And even now, I mean, the game itself didn't do that great, but it was almost like a little CG movie. And I think we had a very decent budget and we had some really experienced people in the cinematic department and they used that budget really well. And they made the right choices in terms of getting like the highest end performance capture. And, you know, it was really kind of a blast for the character artists on that project because they were able to work almost like, it was almost like they were working on a, like a, um, a Hollywood blockbuster, essentially. Were you guys using a PBR workflow or is this before PBR? This was basically at the start of PBR. And Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly if this is true, but from my perspective, I think that at that point, Crytek kind of, they were one of the first who were kind of introducing PPR. Yeah. And you know that like Crytek has always been, I think their strength has always been their shader programmers. And at that time, they had a shader programmer, Nicholas Schultz, and he kind of really pushed for that PPR workflow, which was very alien to the artist at the time. But mm-hmm. it really paid off. And yeah, and you know, obviously now it's kind of uh, an industry standard. What do you think are the advantages? Because, I mean, PPR is still confused. It's default. It's standard. Everybody understands, you know, you get your albedo or, or just your base or whatever it is. But now it's a little bit, like, accepted. But what are what were the advantages, just so people understood what the deal was? Why did we have to shift? I think, it, if I remember correctly back then, it took us a very long time to really, as artists, understand the significance of this. Mm-hmm. And I think we all kind of just, we accepted it as a way for texturing the assets so that 
no matter what the lighting conditions would be throughout the game, they would always be uh, lit correctly and shaded correctly. So like yeah. a standardized value system. And at that time, there was also no like uh, substance painter and substance designer. So there weren't really PBR painting tools at the time. So we didn't really think about it as like a workflow or a pipeline. It was just more like values that we had to make sure we had right yeah. uh, so that the shading would work appropriately. Obviously, now it became a huge industry standard and it made most of the pipelines significantly better, faster, and it kind of removed a lot of... Like right now, as, as an artist, you have to worry much less about getting the values right and you don't have to worry about the your asset not looking good in specific lighting scenes because the tools now with Substance Painter and, and Designer are just made so that you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. So it's much different now from way back then. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, the, the problem is, is you can be fudging your specular map and, and it, then you get it into a different lighting setup and your specular just, you know, goes through the roof. You, you have all kinds yeah. of artifacting and crazy stuff. But now that's really, I think, you know, just makes uh, predictability across lighting scenarios better. That's pretty much one of the yeah. primary advantages, right? Yeah, it's it's a, a very different world for artists now than it was back then. And I had yeah. this kind of weird situation where for most of that project, I was like a manager. So I wasn't really doing hands-on uh, development. Yeah. Um, I was close to it, of course, but I had this kind of almost a two-year break of doing real 3D work. And then yeah. I decided to go back to doing real 3D work after that project was done. And it gave me this kind of, this gap of, you know, I had the software that jumped two years ahead. So I didn't have like the gradual experience of, of software evolving. And yeah. ZBrush was a really good example because when I opened ZBrush two years later, all of a sudden there was like Dynamesh, you know, and yeah. that's like a really huge thing. So. That was a really strange experience for me, and it showed also how much the software had evolved just within that two-year span. And then that's right when Substance was taken off, too. Yeah, yeah, Quixel and Substance right. were starting to become like real players in the games industry. Quixel was probably um, a little bigger then. Yeah, at the time, yeah. I remember when I started doing character work again, it was first Quixel, and that was still a little bit awkward because it was mm -hmm. integrated into Photoshop. But it showed the potential then, you know, like you could really see the power of that tool and how it would potentially evolve. And I think you can see the same thing now with uh, Houdini. Like Houdini is a little yeah. bit weird and awkward for the artist, but you can kind of start seeing how potentially in a few years that will kind of change the industry as well. You know, but Houdini is that perpetual program always at that edge, it seems like because it was that program 10 years ago. It was like, oh, my God, you can do all this stuff in Houdini. It's so yeah, damn it's, hard to use that program. Yes, it's very hard, it, especially if you're just a pure artist. So, yes. you know, like, because you kind of, to make stuff work, you have to invest a lot of time into learning stuff that you may not be interested in as an artist. Yeah, um, that's the key, I think. If you're more tech-minded, like designer and, and Houdini have a lot more in common. But if you're coming straight from ZBrush and you go into Houdini, it's like, yeah, it's very different universe. Yeah, but maybe... You know, maybe in a few years, that'll get a lot better. So, yeah. uh, like, I think they're doing that well, that they're making it easier and more approachable. But at the same time, it's also, like, a super high-end tool that is used in the film industry. So, you know, they have to kind of... Yeah, it's, it's a strange balance that they have to keep 
between supporting that high-end pipeline and yeah. also making it usable by just pure creative people. And I don't think they're there quite yet. I've seen UVs done in Houdini better than anywhere else. I've seen, you know, it's got a better decimation master, quote unquote, you know, decimation yeah. master. It's more powerful, more inputs. It's pretty crazy. But I mean, along those lines, I see another program is going through that is Blender. And you're in Blender yeah. right here. Yeah. 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 So I think it's two years ago now that I I was on site for a freelance job. And yeah. one of the artists there, Daniel Beistet, he he was working in Blender. And at the time, I was trying to find a better way to do hard surface modeling because I was really bad at everything that was hard surface. So I was only really experienced with organic sculpting. Mm-hmm. And I just, that was a big gap in my kind of tool set. And I just couldn't get used to modeling in Maya. Like I just, it, it didn't jive with me. And even, <laughs> uh, yeah. Probably for and good then, reason. It sucks. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a bit better now, but I think then so, yeah. it was just, yeah, it was horrific. And um, most of the people I knew, you just went to Next or you had other plugins. You, you basically yeah. had to plug something into it to make it more usable. Yeah. And so I gave it a shot and it was, it was about a two month learning curve. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, I just really, really fell in love with this software and it paid off because since then, like they're, they're about to release their 2.8 yeah. and it's a real game changer, this software. Oh, we had Daniel actually in last week. I was talking to oh, Daniel really? and he did a okay. demo of his tiger, that tiger with the fur yeah. in uh, Eevee and then in the other renderer and Oh my God. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. amazing. And he's working mostly with doing high-end visual effects, so not even like the game stuff, which is kind of a bit lower end, or not lower end, but it's it's less intensive in terms of the resources that you have to put into it. So it shows mm-hmm. that you can really use this software, which was a bit of a joke a couple of years ago, to, mm-hmm. to now being professionally used all across the industry. Yeah, I did a video just just two years ago, where I talked about software sophistication, like, you know, it was better if you learned Maya, because Maya is like the sexy tool. But that's all gone now. None of that. I mean, Blender's absolutely a contender, as far as I can tell. Yeah, for sure. It's a bit weird now, because there's definitely a a hype uh, going Mm -hmm. on, which is kind of a weird thing to say about anything in this industry, that there's things like hypes now. And um, well, they're celebrities too, you know. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. it's very interesting. Like it's definitely it a, a new thing, and I don't think it's bad necessarily. But yeah, it, it is difficult to see where where that's gonna go because the software evolves so fast, and and it's probably one of the biggest challenges for new people and even people who've been in the industry for ten years. They constantly have to kind of keep up with what's going on, and it can sometimes be a bit scary. Because you feel like, you know, there's all of this software and how do I, I cannot possibly learn Blender and Houdini and Substance right. and whatever's next and, and be good at it as well. And so it can be a bit overwhelming for the artist, I think, today. So I want to get in and, and talk about Blender. But before we get in and talk about Blender, tell me about this transition from Crytek to where now you're, I, I imagine Purple Puppet is where you're working with your wife right now, right? Yeah, that's correct. Did you meet your wife before Crytek or? No, we, we met at Crytek during that, uh, the production of Rice. And uh, yeah, we fell in love and, you know, the whole story. And then at the end of that project, I had this thing where every time I was at work, I mm-hmm. was thinking about personal projects. And when I would get home, I would be too tired to do the personal project. And that got, 
you know, old very quickly. And I, one day I just decided, you know, I'm just gonna take the risk and quit my job and see if I can do some freelance work. And that's kind of how Purple Purpose started. And then we moved to Sweden because my wife took a job at Dice here in Sweden. And then I, I continued the, the company here. And ultimately, she joined the company. And that's where we're we at right now. We don't need to get too personal here, but how is it working with your wife with a significant other? I yeah. have my own stories to share. <laughs> right, yeah. We've been doing it for a while. So obviously, it works. And mm-hmm. there's huge advantages if you have someone that you're working with professionally and can also be 100% honest with. And they also know your life perfectly. If you're working in a company, you're surrounded by other people and you don't necessarily know their personal story. You don't right. know what those people are going through, what they're dealing with. And in the case of the both of us, we do because we, we live together and we're married. So we do have that thing that we know. And and that I think can be a huge, huge advantage because I feel like we're able to work faster that way and more yeah. efficiently. And there's of course a flip side to it as well. You know, like we, we work from home. So there's no really clear line between our home life or our regular life and our professional life right and so it's very easy to kind of burn out and work too much and forget about the fact that we also have to do stuff outside of work and so that's always kind of a little bit the challenge uh, with our setup but we it's it's a huge ad- advantage that that we both love kind of the same thing and passionate mm-hmm. about the same thing it's nice you guys are from totally separate sides of that conversation you're from the art side she's from the tech side I mean, not the art side is quite technical at the end of the day, but... Yes, so she's mainly doing some tools programming and then anything related to character rigging and stuff like that. So it's very useful to me because I... Obviously, topology is a big part of uh, any kind of character pipeline or for character artists. And, you know, just having someone who has to rig the characters that I make, not only do I get immediate feedback about what kind of... You know, if there's not enough loops or if some topology won't work, like she, I also can, like I have the person right right next to me. And so, yeah, it's just a huge advantage. I think I learned and progressed a lot uh, just in my character art development just because of uh, Reham just being there and giving me feedback on basic stuff. Telling you what you did wrong. Yes, pretty much, yeah. Good. <laughs> it usually makes you better. How do you get clients? You've been doing this about a year, two two years, five months. How do you get clients? Well, when I quit Cryotech, I was pretty lucky because in those two years that I was being a manager on Rise, I was managing the character team, but I was also we also heavily outsourced. Mm-hmm. Um, and I chose to outsource mainly to freelancers and not to big vendors at the time. So I had a chance to really work with a lot of individual freelancers uh, character artists and concept artists and to see which ones were doing a really good job, which ones it was a real pleasure working with. Unintentionally, that kind of gave me an insight about how people like working with freelancers and what turns someone off from a freelancer. And it's not just about being really good at your job or being a really good 3D artist. It has a lot to do with how you handle feedback and how you communicate with the client and all that stuff. So I had a pretty good database of what I would have to do to be a successful freelancer and not to annoy clients. So that was a huge advantage. And then I also had, of course, a bunch of contacts from having worked in the industry for 10 years, which is, of course, always a a huge advantage. 
So I've been really lucky that I haven't had to really struggle to find work as a freelancer. But it is one of those things where sometimes, you know, months go by and, and there's no work. And then all of a sudden there's like three clients and you can't take all of them. So that's kind of, you know, there's ups and downs as a, as a freelancer. But I've, been, I've definitely been lucky, I have to say. But in terms of the deliverables, how does this work? Because one of the things that students do in the, in the, um, before they actually get a job is they freelance, right? So they go out, they freelance, they take a couple of jobs here and there. And usually, of course, as a student, they're doing it on the, the cheap end. Somebody's yeah. hiring a student and thinking the student's cheap, but just ignoring that. What kind of deliverables do you give to a client? So is it the substance files or is it just the mesh and the high and the uh, and the maps? It depends a lot on the client and then the mm-hmm. individual that you're working with. So I can't say that any client has been the same. Um, okay. Some clients really will want to have like renders of the work in progress, mm-hmm. like front side 360s and stuff. And some clients will want to have the actual 3D meshes or, you know, OBJs, OBJ files or even the ZBrush files as they're giving feedback. Usually, if you're working with a client that has an in-house character artist, they will want to see the, the actual work files. So it, it, it all kind of depends on the individual that is giving you feedback. And I try to always understand where they're coming from. So sometimes you're just working with an art director who has a background in lighting but not in 3D modeling, then you have to kind of understand that they will probably, they might be late with feedback in the sense that you might finish the whole high poly and then start texturing. And when you start texturing, that's when they're going to give the feedback that you wish you would have had while you were still sculpting. <laughs> All right, got it. That's just where their skill set lets them be useful. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So knowing that and understanding who your client is can change a lot of how you would work with them and ultimately getting along with the client as well. Because if you don't understand the client, then you're not going to get along and then it's not going to go well. What kind of timeline do you usually work in? Are these things that you turn around in days or weeks or is it even, is it open-ended? Some of my first clients were really, the, the work was, you know, months. So it would, would be cinematic characters that would take sometimes two months, three months. It depends a lot if the client has a, a, a deadline that they need to, to catch or if it's open-ended work, if they're just looking for marketing work so that they can get investment for their project. So although I have to say that it has evolved to more shorter deadlines, usually the characters, like single characters, would be definitely less than a month. 20 days is pretty, it seems to be a pretty good average right now for mm-hmm. the kind of characters that I do. And I'm, I'm comfortable with that as well. That gives enough space for some creative exploration and some feedback loops and stuff like that. So I would say 20 days seems to be a good average right now for medium to AAA character work. And are you given concepts or are kind of loose ideas? That also varies. I really like having um, concepts. Uh, yeah. Like it, it's, it makes the job a lot easier because usually if there's a concept, someone has approved the concept already. So then there's, there's less of a chance that you will misinterpret what the client is after. But I really like character design myself. So I, I really enjoy the process of designing something. So I take jobs that don't have concepts with open arms if it allows me to be a little bit more creative. Mm -hmm. It's definitely more risky, but I would say I probably enjoy that more. 
Do you do your designing in 3D or do you have a process where you sketch and go through paint or do you just you just go through and work on a high poly and see where it goes? I used to concept and sketch in 3D and ZBrush, uh, mm-hmm. but recently I've started doing more traditional 2D work. So yeah. like the, the Goblin character is an example where, so here you see the concepts that I was doing for this Goblin character. And this is the specific one, but I kind of made a whole set of them you know, different kind of characters and just because I was enjoying doing it and it was also a good way for me to understand the character a little bit better. And these are very, they're not really made to say, hey, look, I'm, I can draw characters. They're more for me to better understand what, what will work in the design and what doesn't work. And I found that doing that just for one day or two days in a project makes the actual work then a lot easier because yeah, it just goes faster because I know already what I can lean on. Like with this mm-hmm. character, I think he's very close to what the 3D character ended up being. Yeah. And yeah, just most of the questions were answered in the concept. All right. So that makes sense to me. In terms of billing, what do you usually tell people when they're thinking of doing this? And, you know, of course, there's a student rate and you want the job and, and all of that. But how do we think about billing for studio work when we're on our our own. Do you think about it just in terms of your hourly rate? Do you take an hourly rate and then add to that, you know, because you got to pay taxes, all that stuff that freelancers tend to forget in the beginning. But you've probably had, you've had multiple rounds of dealing with stuff like that. So how do you think about billing now? It's complicated. First of all, most people who work inside of the industry and studios, they have a very distorted view of what vendors and freelancers should be charging. And that it makes sense that they do because they are looking at their paycheck yeah. and, you know, which is one thing to look at. There's mm-hmm. one way of looking at it, but yep. the freelancer or the vendor has to, is dealing with a whole different story. They have to pay their own taxes and they have to pay for their software and their equipment. They have to pay for mm-hmm. everything. And I've been in that position as a, someone working in a studio, having to look at the freelancer and then seeing their rate, their day rate or hour rate and being just mm-hmm. shocked yeah. and then, you know, outraged. And, but it is a different story and because there, a lot of, there's a lot of costs involved. And that's one of the mistakes that I made when I started is I didn't really think about all of those costs. And I also didn't think about my experience. So I would think, mm-hmm. okay, this job is going to take 20 days and I should charge roughly this amount per day. So I usually mm-hmm. try to do day rates instead of hour rates. I just that works better for me personally unless the client wants hour rates, I'm fine with that, but I prefer day rates. But I started very low because yeah, I didn't take into account everything that goes into what I do and that includes actually just the experience that you have, not just how good of an artist you are, but also what you've acquired over the years, your knowledge of certain pipelines and yeah. ways of working that the client will never really see or know, but they will benefit from it. And so over time, I've tried to take that more into account. And it, it is a good way to to justify increasing your rate as you gain more experience and want to grow as a company. And it is it is the correct way to look at it. Um, it's easier to undercharge than to overcharge, yeah. I found. Especially if you're starting out, there's always this fear that if you charge too much, you will turn off the client and then lose the client. But I found that the client that will be outraged at your rate and tell you to leave or something like that, 
those are rare clients. Usually the client will say like, hey, that's a bit too much for us. That's not in our budget. Is there a corner we can cut? Or, And those are usually then the clients that you will have a good relationship with because they are honest about what they can, what their situation is. And so I try to take into account the client as much as possible. And that includes the, the project that they have, the type of work that they have. If, if I really enjoy the concepts and the characters that they have, and if it's a small studio or a startup, I will definitely adjust my rate to, you know, to take all of that into account. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, if I have to work, if it's a, a job that requires me to work throughout the holidays, I will also increase my rate, of course. So, so it kind of cuts both ways. It's very complicated to charge the right amount for what you bring to the table and then also to feel okay with it because you have to ultimately justify it to yourself as well. And that's often difficult. Are you in a position now where you have to also include your wife in the calculation? Yeah, yeah. And that can be complicated as well because not all clients understand. Some clients would like to see a breakdown of the work. Yeah. And then they, you know, you can say, well, the rigging will take five days and the 3D modeling will take 10 days or so. And that, you know, that can be good because then there's no real, and they, you, and if you work with a, a day rate, then it's an easy calculation for the client. They understand it and they know what yeah. they're paying for. But some clients are not really interested in that. And then you're dealing with a more vague number. Some clients want to just pay a flat rate. And then I've had clients also that, that are so rigid that when you that even if they wanted to, they wouldn't be able to pay you overtime. Especially like really big clients, clients that are really big studios, they often have to go through so much red tape to get contracts adjusted or remade that by the time that you would have the updated contract to justify the additional work that they want you to do, the project would be over. I'm exaggerating a bit, but I've definitely been in situations where I ended up just working a bunch of days for free for a client simply because I knew that it was going to be a nightmare to have a new work order for me to be able to invoice them. So, you know, different sized clients come with different sized problems. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate that. Thank you so much for for that. I know know working freelance and just understanding working on your own, there's so many complexities to that. Yeah. We've got a few students that are looking at doing that now. And then there's there's also different agencies. So like if if we look at Chaos Mason or Kiosk Mason, it's pronounced Chaos. But you know, in that studio, they're working with, I think we were interviewing, one of my students went and joined them, but they had something like a 50 plus people that they work with. Oh, well. Huge, huge company. I think the, the model of um, the big vendor that mm-hmm. You know, that is essentially like a company, like an actual game company that that then works for other games companies. That's kind of changed. I've seen that change a little bit to more like what you just described, where you have like a a couple of people who get freelancers on their team. Right. Sometimes not full time, but just like an extended group of freelancers and then kind of operate as a vendor. And then they can kind of flexibly grow and scale depending on what kind of projects they get. I don't know if that's similar to to this yeah. company, but it sounds totally. Familiar. Yeah. All right. Well, why, why don't we unpack what you got in front of us? Because Blender is one of the big things that's on my mind these days, because I have to think about what I want to train my artists in. And I, I'm very trained in Maya, like Maya's in my genetic code. And it got, through, it got there through extreme pain 
and <laughs> frustration. So I'm disinclined to go through that experience again, but Blender's very tempting. So tell me, what are the advantages that you see of artists using Blender as opposed to Maya, Max, and Modo? And I'm not trying to start a flame war. I just mean like, mm-hmm. why would I invest the time to do this? I think one of the fancy new features that is attracting people to Blender is the real-time viewport, the new viewport, the EV viewport. And it is very impressive. So this is real-time and it's, it's you know, it, it's with subsurface scattering. It has soft shadows and it's really fun to work like this, especially once you've already textured your character. The sculpting tools are definitely not what they are in, in ZBrush, in my opinion even though they're improving a lot, but I wouldn't use Blender just for sculpting. But the cool thing is that you can sculpt or adjust my expression how I want. And this is the kind of stuff that it seems very simple. There's nothing really special about it. Mm-hmm. But as you're working on like refining things like uh, an expression, having the ability to do all of this essentially in your final shaded rendered look it's a very strange experience that you didn't really have until now. The equivalent would be sculpting inside of the 3D engine, the Unity or, or Unreal. Like mm-hmm. that, that hasn't really been around. So that's a very cool thing that you have now with the EV real-time engine. But yeah. that wouldn't be the reason why you would want to learn Blender, in my opinion. I would say that the thing I love most about Blender is just the standard modeling abilities that you have inside of Blender. Especially if you come from Maya, it's really, it's once you get used to the the shortcuts and the user interface, that's a little bit awkward sometimes. Yeah, It's a really powerful modeling tool and it, it has a lot to do with the modifier stack that you have that's kind of similar to 3D Max. Ah, um, fair enough but it's a bit more flexible. And then just also the standard modeling tools that you have. So a good comparison would be ZBrush in the sense that ZBrush is also a little bit funky. It's a bit weird in terms of an application. The UI is very strange, but once you get rolling with ZBrush, you're not really thinking like an engineer. You're just thinking like an artist. Right. And Blender for me does the same thing for basic modeling. I think for me, that's the best way to kind of sum it up. So I definitely recommend it. I think Modo is probably also a very good example of this kind of feeling that you can get modeling. But other than those, I, I, I don't know if, if you would be able to get that in, in Maya or, or Max. That makes a lot of sense, actually, because Modo is the other one that people speak about, you know, in terms of that's the modeling tool. And I, I think if I remember correctly, the history of Brad and, and those guys, when they moved out of Lightwave, the big issue was to take modeling on its own and do it better. Yeah. Because yeah. nobody had done it, you know. And I, I know even Pixelogic attempted this with Z Modeler, and I think they're still in the process of attempting, you know, to make this more powerful with their tools. And Z Modelers, we interviewed a guy out of EA, and the, their only modeling tool is Z Modeler. That's it. They don't use nothing else. Yeah, that's impressive. Personally, I, I've tried to really get into Z Modeler, and it, mm-hmm. I, it doesn't really have vibe with me although mm. there are some there's some stuff in z modeler that i you know that i can't help but wish that i would have it in blender it requires some kind of time investment into learning it and to get really fluent with it and i guess we have to kind of choose our battle so yeah i like this uh, the layers the well not the layer stack that substance the uh, modifier stack is really yeah sounds like that's where the powerhouse is 
So if we're looking at that, we've got modeling is a key. The real-time rendering is this pretty awesome. <laughs> it's pretty sweet. But how does the real-time rendering transition into the game? Is it a pretty straight duplicate? Because most of these things are different, right? I mean, it looks different in Substance than it does in Marmoset and then in Unreal, you know, there's a lot yeah, of work just so in Unreal. What you uh, see in Blender to what you would see in Unreal or Unity is very close, especially, of course, if you're sticking to the PBR guidelines. Mm-hmm. The difference that you would have would be with specific shaders and the way that's, that some stuff is written differently in the different engines. I think an, an example would be um, the subsurface scattering that you have. I don't think they're identical the way that they work. So you would have like minor differences there. But mm-hmm. I think it's it's a small enough difference for the artist not to get in trouble. So I know that if I do my textures and, and uh, my setup in Blender and then move it over to Unity or Unreal, there won't be huge surprises. If anything, Unreal will probably give me some additional possibilities that I won't have in Blender. So mm-hmm. maybe the project requires me to use specific shaders that I wouldn't have in, in Blender. And that's where obviously I would, you know, would have to switch to Unreal quicker. But for me right now, most of the work, one of the advantages that I've had with Blender is that I've been able to show work in progress that's much closer to what the final piece will be. And that gave the clients then a better view, especially clients who are not necessarily artists themselves or, or 3D artists. Mm-hmm are then able to better judge and give feedback. Do you feel like, this is just occurring to me right now as as I'm saying this, and it came about, let me give you some context. So at the boot camp at Game Art Institute, we teach, we're very focused on process. High resolution first, low resolution, then you go into your UVs, your bake, then you go into your texture, then you go into your your game engine. And of course, always we're thinking final product, you know, everything has to be final product. This breaks down somewhat when you've got uh, levels of complexity. So for example, this just happened last week. So Simon Fox of Blizzard was doing, mm-hmm. he, he mentors the environment artists and he did this as a demo. It's about a two hour demo for the students and it's all about modeling an environment, but you never go to high res because everything's done in these trim sheets. So you create trim sheets first and he's got like, you know, four or five different parts to the trim sheet and then builds this entire facade straight from trim sheets and from a medium, if not actually, if not the low resolution, straight from the low resolution. So he bypasses high resolution almost entirely, although he does do a high resolution for the trim. So that's the context. And the question is, is as we go through this, do you see the, these, these things kind of blending where maybe you don't need to do so much of the high resolution right off the bat and you can mix some of the low res with some of the substance work to create your character? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think I, I know what you're talking about. This has been like a, a very strange development in, I think, in the last two years. Mm-hmm. We've seen it in Blender as well, where there's been some really powerful add-ons that kind of work to to that kind of pipeline that you're describing, where you never actually do anything that is subdivided. You're just modeling. It's very dirty modeling often. I think mm-hmm. the plugins I'm, I'm, or the add-ons I'm thinking of are HardOps, I think, is one of them yeah. in Blender. And it allows you to, especially with hard surface stuff, to kind of never have to subdivide or, or add um, a subdiv modifier to your mesh. Or it does even a whole they- rounded edge thing? Yes. So it deals with the normals yeah. in a very smart way. 
mm-hmm. then it gives you the tools that will allow you to to handle essentially a lot of geometry or a lot of kind of unorganized topology in, in a way that you don't have to worry too much about a proper topology because you never have to subdivide the assets. You always stay in this unsubdivided state and it's incredibly powerful if you're dealing with Boolean operations, of course, because then one of the problems with Boolean operations is that you can make a nice cut, but then ultimately when you have to subdivide the mesh, you have to make sure that whatever you've cut, you then have to resolve the topology around that cut. And that's a lot of work. And so this has become, obviously it has become like a very viable workflow especially for hard surface modeling. And as you, I didn't know that Simon was working this way, but hearing that, it kind of confirms that it's, a, that it's a viable way of modeling. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, are we doomed to become, you know, fat slobs like WALL-E just floating on, you know, <laughs> teleport, <laughs> levitating platforms that, uh, and talking into the screens? Or does it empower us? I don't know. But the other element of this, and I don't know how much of this is on your mind or not, but the other element of this on my mind is artificial intelligence, and machine learning specifically, and what yeah. that's doing. You know, because I was looking at this demo that Facebook did. They call them codex avatars. And that just takes the whole face sculpting thing out of the equation. I mean, it's yeah. unreal. Yes. So uh, I don't know, I think it was 2015 or 16 when we were working on Rise and the whole idea was to make real-time humans as realistic as possible. And so we used uh, Imaginarium to do our performance capture and just yeah. we, we used the highest possible tools that were available to do this. And we hired proper actors and we went all the way with that. And it was after that project that I then also decided I didn't want to do hyper-realistic performance capture character work anymore because I just could see that you know, there was not much like uh-huh. artistic work in it. And yeah. And you could also see the, the the progression of how ultimately technology will kind of like mocap is a good example where we still need a lot of animators to just clean up mocap. And you know, we call those people animators, but they're not really animating anymore in, in some cases they're just cleaning up mocap. And that seems like such a temporary thing. And it would have to be temporary. Like we if it's just cleaning data we shouldn't have people do it. it. It should be a process that can be automated and can be done in a smart way. And mm-hmm. we can use those humans to do very interesting, beautiful hand key animation or to direct the mocap sessions. And, you know, but it, the same thing is kind of creeping into the 3D creation workflow or the, the character modeling environment where, mm-hmm. especially with now with, with scanning workflows, there's just very little that, I have very mixed feelings about it. I all I can say is that I'm I'm personally not interested anymore in doing jobs that require these kind of hyper realistic human like uh, replicas. Mm-hmm. I like seeing them and I enjoy having them in the media that I consume. But to be part of that production, I, it's just not that interesting to me. It makes sense. You know, if we talk about the cleanup, one of my neighbors here in Laguna worked on Final Fantasy. So we met for coffee and it was my first time meeting her. So she was talking about the work and I was like, she's like, she's an animator. And I'm like, you mean mocap? And, you know, so we started this little banter of, (laughs) is it real animation? Is it not animation? Right. But it's been out there for a long time. But 
no, I don't think anybody contend animation done by animators. Beautiful. Amazing. That's a craft. That's a skill. There's a guy, Aaron Blaze, that's actually still teaching kind of the old, the old ways online, which I think is really cool. I like to tune into his Twitch every now and then. But when we look at the cleanup, it's an obvious machine learning task. It's checklist. You know, it's, is yep. this too far out of parameters? Can we bring it in? And yes, we can make a machine learn that. And there's platforms now for that. I think Google's developing a platform for machine learning and, and Amazon is as, as well, obviously. So those are going away. So your response to this is to get into stylized work more. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's what I'm naturally more interested in. I don't know if this is valid anymore or if it's, it's a smart thought, but a while ago I was looking at it, you know, you could go either two ways. You can just figure out the thing, what you're doing, what is at the core of it. And mm -hmm. as a 3D artist, especially character artist, at the core of character art, there is art and there is just um, character design. It's what makes good design, what makes something appealing. And that includes how you present stuff, color stuff. Like it's just this, this kind of raw stuff that is composition, color theory, all of that stuff. And on the other end, the complete other end, you have essentially just matte, which is if you're a technical artist or a programmer, at, at your core, you just have basic matte. So if you want to be safe, if there's something like that, you just go in that direction of what is at the core of your profession. And I'm not saying that a computer won't be able to create perfect character designs that are stylized. I think they probably will. But it's more of a thing like, you know, it, it's, it's not some, I don't think it's worth thinking too much about or worrying too much about it, but I feel like I'm, I can't go wrong by going in the direction of what's at the core of the thing that I enjoy doing. Because I know that I could also just spend my days kind of in between the, the creative and the technical space, keeping up to date with what's new in the scanning technologies and, you know, like, yeah, just kind of the, the technical space. And there's just a lot of time, a lot of time that can be spent there that I rather spend kind of learning kind of the basic craft of what it is that we do, because I think that's what, you know, will, will last longer. And I think I'll just enjoy it more in the long run. And it's kind of just building blocks that once you, or the more you master those building blocks, the more freedom you then I think will get in creating your own stuff and expressing yourself creatively through your craft just relying less on the tools, I guess. You know, that's a great way for us to segue because I've been I've been stealing quite a bit of your time. So I'm going to let you go here in a sec. But it, this, it's a great segue to the question I always like to learn from people. And the context behind this question is, you know, I myself have spent a lot of time learning and learning and learning and trying to mm -hmm. master things. And there's a certain level at which the depth in which we go to this is just outside of what the marketplace actually really cares about, right? Like you, there's a depth mm -hmm. to anatomy it's going to help you, but do you spend five years learning anatomy before you get a job as a character artist or before you even apply? That's an absolute waste of five years. Go get the job, yeah. keep learning, right? So what do you think are the essential building blocks or the essential triggers for a character artist? And I'm specifically thinking in terms of getting a job. There's a lot of people on the market today, mm -hmm. a lot more than there used to be. But there's also, in my opinion, a lot more opportunity than there used to be. I think there's a huge amount of available work and the variety of work is also much larger. It's easy for us to get kind of a narrow view of what this industry is because we specialize and then we think the thing that we specialize in or the, the stuff that we're exposed to is what this industry represents. 
if you're working in a AAA studio, it's easy to think that the industry is mainly made out of AAA console games, but it isn't. Mm. It, it absolutely isn't. It's made up out of a huge variety of different types of character work that comes with different kinds of pipelines. PBR is a good example because we talked about it previously. It's not correct that this industry is that uh, is about PBR. It's about all kinds of things, including hand-painted textures. Still, mm. some of the most popular, most the biggest money-making products on uh, in the games industry today are not PBR. They're hand-painted or in some way flat-shaded. Or yeah. you know, so there's a huge variety of work. So I think a good place to start is to think about what it is that you enjoy watching and what what if, even if you watch someone else's work on ArtStation, even if it's 2D work instead of 3D work, to just look at what you really like and what you think is like just really amazing and, and inspiring and what you wish you would be able to do. Not necessarily copy, but just to have, have the same kind of ability of expression and right. then start from that because there's definitely work out there for pretty much any kind of style, including hyper-realistic, including super cartoony. So I think starting from what you think you want to do, what kind of makes you interested is a good place to start. Okay. And then there's just also a huge amount of resources online now. So if you just follow the artists that you like their work and would like to do the same type of work, you know, you can learn a lot by just doing that. That's awesome. Folks, got uh, time for just any questions. Shout them out real quick in chat. Corinne is asking, do you, do you have a Twitch account or anything that you do online? Yeah, so I, I have a, a YouTube channel. If you go on YouTube and you look for Game Dev Fret, then you should find my channel. And I, I do mainly Blender-related work there. And it's been a while since I've posted something new. I've also meddled on Twitch a little bit. I did some uh, VR painting sessions on Twitch. Uh, but sometimes it depends if I have a client or client work. I can't really do a lot of content for the YouTube channel, but it's one of the things I'm passionate about. So if I don't have client work, I usually make content for the YouTube channel. And I think actually that's one of the places in which I found you, that NARP station. But I was really impressed with the, the, the content you deliver. Thanks. Uh, things like your video fun with curves and array modifier for skirt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ah, and then you've got a video there, right? Because you've got your own podcast you're doing. Are you still doing the podcast? No, it was kind of, you know, I had Daniel mm-hmm. nearby yeah. here. And yeah. he was kind of the guy that turned me on to Blender. So I, I thought it would be cool to have a chat with him about, about Blender and his experience. But it, it stayed to that one podcast episode. It's a lot of work. Uh, hats off <laughs> to you. About it. Tell me about it. Yeah, I'm doing two this week, actually. We got two that we oh. bring in. The only way I can make it happen is is I, is I do it with the students. And so if people have questions, it's like, this is a fantastic opportunity. So it's like Laura is asking, how do you find the smaller studios with different types of content? And so she's picking up on what you were saying, where there's lots of different places. But I, I get what Laura is saying, which is, if I'm looking for jobs, I know, well, I mean, you Blizzard, everybody knows. And Overwatch, I think, if I remember correctly, Overwatch is, is very old. I don't, even, I don't think they're using PBR. But yeah, you know, it's something close to PBR, I think. Yeah. Okay. But then everybody knows Sony. So when I ask, because every student that comes in that I talk to, I ask, where do you want to work? And then I ask them that same question, like probably 10 more times. Where do you want to work? Where do you want to work? And it's amazing how many times people just, they don't know. And they only know the big boys. Yep. You know, so how do we find that, these other studios? <sighs> That's it. 
the advantage that I have or mm -hmm. that I had was that I had worked in a studio for a very long time, for 10 years. So during that time, you cross a lot of people's paths and you totally. work with a lot of people who come and go. Yeah. And that's where most of the contacts that I have now came from. So yeah. if you don't have that, it can be difficult. But usually most studios have some kind of online presence. They're on Twitter, especially in the studios. They like to promote their product through social media while they're developing it. And then if you are playing games yourself, then it's easy to figure out who the developer is and this, it, similarly a lot of the developers today of all kinds of studios are on social media and they're a lot more reachable than you might think so you know just sending a message to an artist you admire on twitter can be not everyone will respond but some people will do and then that might be your first contact and very often people will prefer working with people that are nice and fun to work with than people who are just amazing artists. If you're an amazing artist and you're a great person, then that's even better. But it's much better to work with someone who is nice to work with than someone who is antisocial and negative, but an amazing artist. So I think if you're friendly and you reach out to people, you can get a lot out of that. Awesome. That's great. And actually, one of the things I just was recommending to people, Laura, was go on LinkedIn and look at the, the companies that you know about. And then you go into their accounts, into their LinkedIn, and you look for where they worked before. Yeah, that's another, that good, you, another good way. Yeah, that'll, that'll get you some, um, some deeper links, you know, because there are some studios that tend to be feeder studios for other places. So you want to find those. Yeah. All right, last question. Corinne is asking contracts. And of course, always get your own lawyer's advice. But in terms of contracts and working with people, do you work with contracts? Do you deal with contracts? Any recommendations for contracts? I remember when, when I, a long time ago, I, I saw some YouTube video of um, a, some famous graphic designer who was giving a talk. And his talk was essentially about that you should always make a contract, even if it's you know, three sentence contract between best friends, always make a contract. And I blindly took this person whose name I forget advice and it's paid off. You know, I've always made some kind of contract, even if it is between, actually between friends. And it may be awkward sometimes to set up a contract, but I think it's just, it's a, it's a very safe thing. It's better to have that awkward moment in the beginning mm. than to have a huge misunderstanding in the end and then potentially lose good faith and, and, and even friends because, you know, bad work experiences can do that. And it's easy to have a misunderstanding. So I usually allow the client to set up the contract and then I go over the contract and I see if there's anything in there that is not working for me, which can be difficult if you're not a lawyer because usually companies have their lawyers make the contracts and they can use all kinds of weird wording. And so it can be confusing sometimes. And to be honest, I just look, the things I look for is sometimes there's stuff in the contract that can be very, like, uh, not bad, but, you know, like, for example, when there's like something called a net and then a number, like a net 30, net 60, 90. And that's basically describing how long the client can wait until they pay you after they receive uh, the invoice, yes. which can... Yeah totally break you if you're a small studio because you need to have you know 
some cash flow and so <laughs> i always look for those kind of key things like the the net and then anything related to how i can use the work in my portfolio or if i can or not because that might adjust that might change the the rate that i ask mm-hmm. as well yeah if if i can never share the work then maybe i might want to ask a little bit more and so far most clients have set up the contracts themselves okay perfect that's great and i totally agree the net is something you got to absolutely keep your eye on cuz you might be waiting to bill and then you don't realize their net 60 and yeah and it will be 60 days before they process it that they push it yeah it's it's very rare that you have a client that pays before they have to pay yeah very rare for good reason you know actually yeah. one one of the business rules is you make more money if you stretch your payments out longer there's some really crazy financing math i was shown and and they were like if you push that out then it changes your profitability which just yeah. is nuts but business is its own deal it's a, yeah and definitely not a not a business guy unfortunately yeah, yeah me either unfortunately <laughs> but at least i'm a teacher fred thank you so much my friend i really enjoyed this conversation thank you for sharing your your knowledge and giving us insight it was my pleasure All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to this. And I want to ask just two things of you. Number one, make sure to leave a comment or rank this wherever you are listening to it on Apple, uh, Stitcher, Spotify. Really makes a difference in helping us get the word out about this industry and about what we do. Number two, make sure you visit vertexschool.com to learn more about what programs we offer in this area as a creative and for artists who are looking to jumpstart their career and discover a new industry. Again, thank you so much for listening. We're accepting applications right now, so I look forward to hearing from you soon.